0: The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: Welcome back to Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, broadcasting from the intersection of faith and freedom. John Gee is a uh, professor uh, at Brigham Young University, and I'll let him fill us in a little bit more about his background and how he ended up there, and, and then we're going to have some questions for him about the Book of Abraham.
0: Well, it's good to be here with you. Um, I've, I'm a professor at BYU right now. Uh, I, my background, I have a, a BA from, from BYU, I've got an MA from University of California at Berkeley and a PhD from Yale. Uh, so that's my educational background. and
1: uh, Is that the best you could do? Uh, yeah,
0: Berkeley <laughs> at Yale? I, well, uh, you know, Harvard didn't have Egyptology at the time. So. Okay,
1: well, you could go there and teach, and then they would.
0: <laughs> no, they do now.
1: <laughs> when we talk about Egyptology, it sounds to me like a very mysterious subject. I remember as a boy, there used to be a show on CBS called Omnibus. And uh, as I recall, Walter Cronkite was the host. And I remember sitting in front of our little black and white Motorola TV, being scared to death when they talked about Osiris and uh, all of the things and the uh, uh, journey into the uh, uh, netherworld and everything. Allay my fears. <laughs>
0: Well, um, Egyptology covers 4,000 years of human history all along the longest river in the world. Uh, it runs from, we first are getting written records there, about 3,000 B.C., and uh, depending on who you talk to, the, it sort of ends, ends up at the end of the first millennium A.D., so it it covers about four thousand years, and we have to cover every uh, facet of that civilization. So nobody gets specialists in everything. Uh, you yeah. know, you you pick your uh, slice of history that you're working with, usually, and uh, the area of specialty that you're doing. We have um, we have texts from all over. We have. We have, of course, religious texts, we have historical texts, We have veterinary texts and medical texts. We have uh, literature, you have daily life, you have uh, legal texts, you have all kinds of of documentation, never as much as you'd like, but it it covers uh, a really vast array of of material. And uh, so, you, I end up being a generalist with a specialty. So I specialize in one slice, but I had to have trained in all of it.
1: It sounds uh, really quite fascinating. So I assume you've been there multiple times.
0: I've been there a few. There are actually some Egyptologists who almost never make it to Egypt, um, and that's not, and that's just happenstance. But uh, also, there are a huge number of unpublished texts and other materials that are in the back rooms of museums, and that needs to be worked on as well as what's still being dug out of the ground. So there's, it's a rich field, a very broad field, and uh, can be a very exciting field.
1: So basically, you're the Indiana Jones of Utah,
0: no, I, I I concede that over to uh, someone like Kerry Muhlstein. I <laughs> uh, do you have
1: a fedora I, hat that you wear?
0: N- I actually don't own a fedora. Um, I uh, do have to wear a hat in Egypt because, um, well, because I have uh, fairly fair skin and burn easily, so I need to uh, need to wear a hat.
1: Well, um, the question is, I suppose, why should Latter-day Saints be interested in Egypt?
0: Lots of reasons. Um, so we can we can start with some obvious ones. So the Egypt is the country mentioned in the Bible um, the second most often after Israel. Egypt is mentioned the most. Uh, there's a lot of contact with Egypt. So from for example, the children of Israel being in Egypt, there's uh, Solomon marries an Egyptian bride, Jeroboam spends some time in Egypt, uh, Jeremiah ends up dying in Egypt, uh, uh, Jesus goes into Egypt as a child, so there are a number of contact points with Egypt uh, in in the Bible. You move to the Book of Mormon, and it's... Uh, written in reformed Egyptian, so that's some form of Egyptian. And then you also, of course, have the Pearl of Great Price, which has its connections with Egypt as well, especially at the Book of Abraham.
1: Well, in case you just joined us, uh, we're here with Egyptology expert and Egyptologist, uh, Dr. John Gee, who uh, teaches at BYU. And I have here on my back... And maybe in the break, I can show it to you. A book by Brian Stubbs. Oh yes, called uh, uh, "Changes in Language from Nephi to Now." And of course, his uh, expertise is on uh, the com- comparative linguistics of the Uta aztecan language compared to to uh, S- uh, Semitic Hebrew and to uh, ancient e- e- Egyptian. And he answers a lot of critical questions people have about Joseph Smith's claim that uh, the Book of Mormon was written in Reformed Egyptian. And I, I don't know, John, have you, have you have you read Brian's book? Are you familiar with it?
0: Um, well, um, I'm familiar with some of his work. I've read some of his work in the past. This particular book happened to come out um, about two weeks before I departed on a major research uh, uh, leave and so unfortunately I haven't gotten around to it um, I, but I've seen his work in the past and and he and, and some of it is very solid and uh, I haven't had a chance to look through the new material um, maybe if I can slow down I can Get a chance to look at it.
1: You know, I'd love to have, a, a, go to a meeting or a, a BYU Education Week with, with you and Brian Stubbs and Daniel Peterson, and let you <laughs> tell us everything we needed to know about the Book of Abraham when we're afraid to ask. Um, let's talk for a moment about the Egyptian connection in the Book of Mormon. I've even heard that the word, that the name Nephi. Has Egyptian roots, so why don't you just start? Let's talk. Let's start from the point where it says, "I Nephi, having been born of goodly parents."
0: Well, um, I did some work on this a uh, number of years ago, but uh, Matt Bowen has picked that up and and really run with that. So the the name Nephi is attested in as an Egyptian name, and it's attested in in the Elephantini papyri, where it's actually written in in Semitic characters, so we can see that uh, the clear um, uh, clear consonantal structure that shows that it's uh, that it matches this uh, Egyptian name, and so it it shows up there, and it means something like uh, good or beautiful or. Um, it's it's sort of your generic positive adjective in egyptian so and uh matt shows that it there's a pun where he says i nephi having been born of goodly parents that a lot of the book of mormon writers when they introduce somebody will put a play on their name nearby oh really and that's in his his book. It just came out. Uh, name is keyword, and uh, and Nephi is one of those. And it just starts the ball ball rolling right with it, the very first with um, the play on the goodly parents and and Nephi's name.
1: Richard. And you're pretty sure that uh, Joseph Smith did not have a book of Egyptian idioms that he was able to use, and then. Uh,
0: uh, well, the, the decipherment of Egyptian uh, is taking place during, and the beginnings of it are taking place during Joseph Smith's lifetime, but the first full Egyptian text that got published was seven years after his death. So, um, and you'd have to have been in Europe to get a hold of that. So, uh not very likely that he picked that up from most of what we can tell.
1: We've got a couple of minutes left here in this segment, but why don't you just give us an introduction of uh, uh, how Egyptian played a role in the uh, writing and editing and uh, of the Book of Mormon as it came from the... Uh, uh, a pen, if you will, of Mormon and Moroni.
0: Well, um, they say that they use Reformed Egyptian. That's what they call it. Um, we might know it under a different name. Uh, but we... And the problem is there are half a dozen Egyptian scripts in use in Lehi's day in Egypt. So, And one of them in, in Israel. So that's the most likely candidate. But Uh, we don't know exactly which one they're using and then they've been uh, modifying it um, for a thousand years if if you go back a thousand years in English you're talking Beowulf
1: yeah exactly and
0: uh, so it's changed a lot in the meantime and the language that they were using changed quite a bit too so I might have a uh, halfway decent shot if I were looking at Nephi's writings of figuring them out. um, I'm pretty sure that if I were looking at Mormon or Moroni without seeing the intervening material, that I probably wouldn't have a clue what was going on.
1: Okay, thank you. We're going to be back after the break here on Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Our guest today is Dr. John Gee, And we're going to learn more about Egypt after the break.
0: More faith affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around.
1: We're back here on Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Girard broadcasting from the intersection of faith and freedom. Our guest today is Dr. and Professor at BYU, Dr. John Gee. And uh, I just told John that one of our goals here at Latter-day Radio is to be like the BYU Education Week of the air. So rather than you having to go to BYU, BYU Education Week, we're bringing BYU Education week to you right here on the radio no charge no parking or anything so uh john last segment we talked about the role that egyptian played possibly in the book of mormon and uh how the book of mormon was written but for today we want to focus on something else and that is the book of abraham it's a stumbling block for a lot of people in the church who have heard rumors sometimes haven't even read the Book of Abraham. But, uh, John, what, in your estimation, do members of the Church need to know about the Book of Abraham so that they'll believe the contents rather than the critics?
0: Well, uh, part of that is focusing on the contents rather than the critics. Uh, So there there are two issues, and we'll hopefully devote this segment to the the first of those, and that's... um, what Joseph Smith did with the papyri and how those relate to the book of Abraham that we have published. And the other is, um, looking at the actual contents of the book of Abraham. So we look at, at, uh, the issues where Joseph, what Joseph Smith did with the papyri and how he produced the book of Abraham. We don't actually know a lot. Um, We know that he received the papyri in uh, end of June, beginning of July of 1835. We have some journal references that refer to translating, don't really give much of an indication of what he was translating at that time. And then we also have uh, a statement by one of the scribes who said that he sat by Joseph Smith's side as he received the book of Abraham from direct inspiration from heaven uh, so that's the what well, we know about the process and then we know that the in eighteen forty two early eighteen forty two he uh, prepared the the Book of Abraham for publication in the Times and Seasons, and it was uh, uh, published in serial form. But they only got a couple of installments, and then, uh, and then for whatever reason, it dropped it. It was a pretty busy time in Joseph Smith's life, so he was being um, sought by agents in Missouri to uh, extradite him for. Uh, something that they thought he had done in Missouri uh, he was uh, trying to or he was organizing the Relief Society he was trying to uh, uh, do a number of other things trying to introduce uh, baptism for the dead and the temple ordinances so it was a very busy time and so it, it sort of fell through the cracks I think And but we have the book of Abraham and then it was uh, uh, republished in 1851 in England and then canonized in 1880 and that's when it became scripture in the church and so there's so the, the questions usually surround uh, the papyri that Joseph Smith had and also um so what they uh, and what did Joseph Smith do with them and a lot of that is inference, uh, some of it's uh, second hand rumors or third hand rumors um, and there's a lot of um, cryptic documents that uh, w. w. Phelps left and he was one of the scribes but they don't tell us as much as we'd like to know in fact uh, there are There are disagreements among scholars about just about every aspect of these documents except for uh, the handwriting on them. And even there, there's a little bit of—has been a little bit of controversy. It's not controversial now. Uh, But if you read some of the older stuff, they assign a couple of documents to uh, somebody other than they assign them to now. So— that's uh but the the date of the documents their purpose how they relate to the uh, book of abraham all of that is disputed so uh there's not much that you can to to start with there that's solid Uh, most of it's disputed so what we have is we have this book and um and that's that's the text and Uh, that was published. and uh, But if we're looking for uh, processes or how Joseph Smith did it, um, the safest answer is we don't really know, Um, other than you've got the scribe who says it was given by direct inspiration from heaven.
1: Well, as uh, Martin pointed out here uh, a few weeks ago, when he talked about this, he said the original scrolls were so long They went from one room of the mansion house into another, and then the pieces that were found uh, by Dr. Aziz, the University of Utah, at least that had caused some of the controversy, were just um, two or three feet in length, when the original that they found uh, that that was described to them by those who watched it said it was, uh, you know, many, many feet long. You could have toilet papered a house with it.
0: Uh, yeah, you, there are some uh, scrolls that we have from Egypt that are that long, uh, so it's not unusual that, and they come from the same time period as the Joseph Smith papyri, same place, so they're, it's not unusual to find something like that. Uh, the The scrolls themselves, um, so what we know about the scrolls is, um, well, you could probably write a book about how they ended up in Joseph Smith's hands, but... Uh, Basically, he he got uh, a number of rolls. There's uh, some dispute among the eyewitnesses about how many rolls he got. Uh, he so four or five, and then some fragments. And uh, what we have are fragments of two of the of the scrolls. And we know that uh, uh, due to some good work uh, by Carrie Mulestein and Alex Ba. That they were mounted uh, in 1837, and that uh, so you have these mounted fragments. What happens if you if you roll up deal with scrolls at all and you roll up pieces of paper? The outside gets handled a lot, Mm -hmm. and so gets damaged a lot, and it starts to and because of that damage, it can get it can start falling off. And so they took the damaged outer portions and they mounted them on this um, almost cardboard. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this very heavy paper, and then they and they glued them on there, and then they put them under frames. But they kept the scrolls intact, and so we have these eyewitness descriptions that talk about the scrolls, and about these long scrolls. That's one of them calls it the long scroll. And uh, then we have these fragments. But the descriptions of these long scrolls, still they're still talking about in the 1840s after the fragments have been mounted. And what happened is that uh, uh, Joseph Smith let his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, show them to visitors. And she did that until her death. And then when she died, they also had some mummies that were went that were associated with them, and she'd show the mummies too. And Emma, once she once Mother Smith died, um, I guess didn't really like the idea of having dead bodies in her house. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that, funny that way. And then, so she sold the scrolls and the mummies to Abel Combs within uh, just about two weeks of Mother Smith dying. And he took them around and showed them, but he split the collection up. And so he seems to have kept some of the mounted fragments, maybe all of them. We don't really know. And um, then he sold some to some museum, the rest of it to museums. And uh, they ended up in Chicago in the Wood Museum. And in 1871, there was this Chicago fire, with uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow and everything starting this fire that burned down two-thirds of the city of Chicago, including the Wood Museum, to the ground. And so whatever was there was lost. Uh, These fragments um, were passed down. We're not really, not entirely sure how. Uh, We've got some of, we, we know the owners, we just don't know in some cases how they're connected. But they ended up, Uh, in uh, 1947 being um, I guess sold maybe given but possibly sold to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and they had them uh, they'd been offered them years earlier and they said uh, took one look at them and said uh, yeah we don't want these and somebody else came back and said uh, yes I think we do want them and then they changed curators, and in the 1960s, they said, uh, we don't want these. <laughs> this is just going to get us in a bunch of—in the middle of a religious controversy, we don't want them. So they uh, found a way to give them back to the church through Aziz Atiyah. and uh, they were given in, back in 1967, which is just over 50 years ago. And uh, so oddly enough, since the scrolls were excavated, the longest they have been in one place and one owner has been in the church archives. So um, now, but what we have is a a fraction of what Joseph Smith had. And so there are are all sorts of questions and uh, debates about which scrolls did Joseph Smith use in the translation? If you follow the nineteenth century historical accounts, the description of the scrolls that they say that he used do not match any of the fragments that we currently have. They just the, the physical description doesn't match. And so um, according to the nineteenth century eyewitnesses, the fragments we have were not the ones that had the book of Abraham on them. And You know, as a modern Egyptologist, we look at it and say, yeah, it doesn't. I feel
1: like we've just scratched the surface, and here we are running out of time for this segment. Uh, I'm Greg Gerard. I'm here with Dr. and Professor John Gee from BYU, Egyptologist, who will continue our discussion on Latter-day Radio after the break.
0: Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com.
1: We're back here on Latter-day Radio with Dr. John Gee, Egyptologist, professor at BYU, we're continuing our discussion about the Book of Abraham. He's given us an idea of how it came to be, but it reminds me of the discussion that we had with Martin Tanner here a couple, three weeks ago, where he talked about how the New Testament came about. We don't have any of the original uh, documents, the uh, papyri, or in in the original Greek or Aramaic or whatever it was written in of the New Testament and yet we read and enjoy and believe in the New Testament. So, John, should we look at the book of Abraham any differently than that?
0: Um, Actually, probably not. Um, So, it's not unusual to have a time lag between when a work is written and when the earliest copy of that survives and that's what we find with the Old Testament, uh, with, uh, the New Testament and, uh, in some ways with the book of Abraham. So the, the papyri that, uh, Joseph Smith had, at least the ones that have survived are Ptolemaic in date. So, um, sometime between the third and first century BC. And that's a, uh, quite a bit of time, uh, from Abraham to that time. But it's important to remember that even though the manuscripts date to that time, some of the texts that are actually on the Joseph Smith papyri date before Abraham. The earliest copies we have of those texts are a couple hundred years before Abraham.
1: We're talking ancient scripture, ancient writings.
0: We're talking about the ancient writings that are on the the papyri, and and uh, this. And some of them are are later. Uh, one of the texts is probably uh, not much earlier than the actual manuscript that we have, but there are some on on uh, uh, on one of the papyri that are some of the texts are are considerably older, even than Abraham. So it's not unusual to have texts that are a long time, and that we need to con- distinguish between the date when a text is written. Uh, so for example, the, um, say the Gospel of Matthew and the date of the manuscript, which might be well, the earliest one from Matthew is fourth century. So it's there's a time lag of at least three hundred years between the writing of the, the text and the actual manuscript. And the same holds true with the Book of Abraham. So you have this remarkable text. Uh, And many people get so hung up on how the book of Abraham was translated that they don't actually look at the text itself. And so the text talks about Abraham and about Abraham's day. And that's a very different day than the one we live in. Um, So it's Abraham lived, oh, let's uh, just put a a date on it somewhere in in around 1800 B.C., give or take. uh, hundred Well, give, give or take 50 years on, on either side of that. Uh, that gives us a, a date for Abraham, and that's, that's almost 4,000 years ago. And things were quite a bit different back then. And the book of Abraham actually gets a lot of things right. So, for example, um, it's an autobiograph- autobiography of Abraham from that time, Uh, probably from the area in uh, uh, modern-day either southern Turkey or northern Syria, maybe down south into Lebanon. He then moves into Israel and then down to Egypt and back. Uh, But it starts off in that time, and we have one other autobiography that comes from that time and place. And the first four phrases in that autobiography are well in some cases are word for word the same four phrases Uh, and sometimes it's just parallel with the thought but uh, and it's obviously not Abraham so it's going to have somebody else's name in there but the phrase in the house of my father in the land of, of and this is a different land and different person but it has the I so-and-so, and I had to leave because of, of something. It's, it's, uh, the, the phrases parallel that, and that's really stunning, particularly since this was not discovered until uh, about 80 years after Joseph Smith's death.
1: And isn't it true there are even things in the Quran that um, verify and corroborate what's in the book of Abraham?
0: That's a separate issue. I'm just t- talking about one. So the Quran is, is Quran is seventh uh, century A.D. So that's um, that's a good two millennia after Abraham. So if we're looking at just stuff from Abraham's time and place, we find a lot of of things that correspond to it. We've uh, found the, the gods that Abraham mentions as he was going to be sacrificed to uh, those are known and um, and
1: Joseph got it right when he,
0: he yeah to. Joseph seems to uh, have got that one right and and the earliest one that we know of on that um, might have been known at the end of the of the 19th century but most of that was found in the 20th century or later and so this is all material that Joseph Smith really couldn't have known about. And for example, he talks about human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And um, yeah, there were some, some rumors about it, but they provide some very specific things that match what we have found archaeologically in Egypt for uh, Abraham's time, place. And some of that was discovered only about 50 years years ago. So there's, uh, there's some interesting archaeological confirmation for the Book of Abraham.
1: In case you just joined us, we're here on Latter-day Radio with Dr. John Gee from BYU, Egyptologist, on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. So what are some of these things that have been found in recent days that uh, give uh, credence to the claims that we read in the Book of Abraham?
0: Okay, so uh, we we talk a little bit about the the human sacrifice. So we actually have found human sacrifice, uh, not only in Egypt, but in places where Egyptians were controlling that were outside of Egypt. So that would be like or of the Chaldees, and they've actually discovered the um, the remains, ar- archaeological remains of this human sacrifice. And we've discovered manuals that say how it was supposed to be done, and the rituals that were supposed to be performed uh, for the human sacrifice. We've discovered uh, legal texts that say when you when someone is uh, subject to that. So, human sacrifice in ancient Egypt is um, is paired with capital punishment. It's a way that they uh, execute criminals and. Uh, Interestingly, Abraham talks about some of the things that he did that ran him afoul with the Egyptians and would make him subject to human sacrifice. And it matches the sorts of things that we have detailed for that from the ancient Egyptian records that come from his time period. So there this is all uh, material that that fits in and when Abraham talks about human sacrifice he says it's done after the manner of the Egyptians which is this you know it's this phrase that's thrown in there and until we looked at the archaeological discoveries, we didn't realize that the Egyptians do human sacrifice differently than they do in in Syria and that area where we also have some evidence of human sacrifice it was a different procedure different ritual and Abraham mentions that Uh, and that doesn't uh, that's something that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known about we didn't know about it until um, the last 50 years in fact it was only uh, about 25 years ago that an Egyptologist uh, who's not very friendly to the church actually put the whole thing together, so that's uh, um, that's not something that we we knew about. Um, there are other things that uh, some of the astronomy uh, matches the Egyptian um, astronomy at the time. In fact, some of the the words that are used that show up in the, in the Book of Abraham that are a little strange are actual Egyptian expressions for exactly the sort of thing he's talking about astronomically. And these come out of texts that uh, have all come to light in the last, oh, 120 years or so. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is um, something that wasn't available to Joseph Smith. Even if he could have read the Egyptians, nobody knew about it at the time. So there's a, a lot of... Uh, uh, material that way, and there are, um, there are a number of other uh, facets about this that I could go into, but I, we don't really have time here, and so I'm going to put in a plug for my book. I have a book out called An Introduction to the Book of Abraham. It goes into all of these issues in, and many others in more depth than we can cover here in uh, a, a quick conversation over the radio. Um, provide suggestions for further reading if people are interested um, and if, if the listeners want to get a, an overview of that um, it's written for a non-specialist audience. You don't have to be an expert on Egyptology. You don't
1: have to speak Coptic or Arabic or any of those languages?
0: No, you don't. Um, uh, I've tried to make it as friendly as possible to your average person. And so, uh, it's, um, so it's an introduction to the Book of Abraham. It's available at Amazon. It's available at Deseret Book. Uh, and uh, it's available at Fair Mormon. There's a number of places that you can get it. And uh, uh, hopefully, if you have other questions about the Book of Abraham, then they will be answered there.
1: So, in the next 20 seconds or so that we've got left, John, how has uh, your education, the studies that you've undertaken, strengthened your testimony of the Book of Abraham?
0: Um, Well, the the studies uh, definitely uh, dovetail with the idea that the Book of Abraham is an actual historical record that talks about actual people who lived in a particular time and place and it matches that as well as anything i could expect
1: well thank you very much we've been listening to john gee professor egyptologist byu and his book is called introduction to the book of abraham and is available wherever good books are sold you've been listening to latter day radio here on 1430 klo world class talk join us
0: after the break we'll be right This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.